When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. From MCIE. Brace yourselves for some real talk. My name is Tim Villegas from the Maryland Coalition for Inclusive Education, and you are listening to Think Inclusive, a show where with every conversation we try to build bridges between families, educators, and disability justice advocates to create a shared understanding of what inclusion looks like in the real world. You can learn more about who we are and what we do at mcie.org. I'm here at the Circle of Friends coffee shop in Woodstock, Georgia, recording my intros and outros for the month of June, so apologies for the background noise. As full-time moms and attorneys, Susan Stone and Christina Supler bring a unique perspective to their practice, leading the student and athlete defense group at Cleveland-based law firm KJK. Susan and Christina have developed robust special education and reputation management practices. They also represent students of all ages facing academic misconduct and other types of discipline. Susan and Christina are nationally published authors, go-to authorities for journalists examining student legal issues and co-hosts of the podcast Real Talk with Susan and Christina which explores student issues and offers guidance for parents. Here is what we cover in today's episode. How Susan and Christina's work overlaps with educators interested in promoting inclusive practices in communities. The challenges of providing social support to students with disabilities in college dorms and some of the topics they talk about on their podcast Real Talk with Susan and Christina. Before we get into today's interview, I want to tell you about our sponsor, Together Letters. Are you losing touch with the people in your life but you don't want to be on social media all the time? Together Letters is a tool that can help. It's a group email newsletter that asks its members for updates and combines them into a single newsletter for everyone. All you need is email. We are using Together Letters so think inclusive patrons can keep in touch with each other. Groups of 10 or less are free and you can sign up at togetherletters.com. 
And now, my interview with Susan Stone and Christina Supler. Susan and Christina, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us. We appreciate it. Hi, Tim. Pleasure being here. I'm very happy you're here. Let's get into our questions. How would you introduce yourself to our audience of educators and families and whoever wants to go first? This is uh, how I would say. I would say that Christina and I have built a practice helping students who are in crisis. So working with students in families in crisis, we represent students of all ages across the country. Uh, We're based in Cleveland, but our clients and our students are here, there, and everywhere, including Antarctica. And in representing students in crisis, what does that mean? It's helping students navigate academic issues. Susan, why don't you talk about our special education work? We work with parents who believe that their students aren't receiving a free and appropriate public education. So we there are there saying, no, no, we need a better IEP. We need a stronger 504 plan. We look at the placements for students with disabilities, and we try to follow those students along their journey to secondary education. When those students get in trouble at times, when they face disciplinary matters, we handle student misconduct proceedings. And under that umbrella, there's also the area of Title IX cases. We do a lot of work with students who are going through campus misconduct proceedings involving allegations of sexual harassment, sexual misconduct whether you're the accused student or um, the victim in the process. So, you know, so this, the, our audience is mostly educators and mostly educators who are interested in inclusion, in promoting inclusive practices, promoting inclusive communities. How do you see your work um, overlapping with, with the people that are listening to this podcast? Well, unfortunately, it's sometimes we butt heads with mm. educators, I and I, I've got to be transparent. And we try not to, but it happens. It, it does happen, and we butt heads with the educational institutions because there's not a person in the educational world who would not say that they support inclusion, Tim. I think all of us want to make sure that all students receive a quality education. However. When there is a hiccup, when those students with inclusion require more accommodations or an understanding of the disability, even in the most tense situations involving student discipline, that's where the rubber hits the road. And that's where you see, are you really committed to inclusion? Or when things get tough, are you going to try to turn your back on that student? And that's where Christina and I defend our clients because we say, no, even if it's tough, we need to work through this. You can't just toss our clients aside. I think some of the tension we have at times, again, we try to really collaborate with educators and the decision makers at institutions, whether it's primary school, high school, beyond, that the tension at times unfolds with student misconduct proceedings. And in particular with colleges, we come across colleges and universities that offer and hold themselves out as having designed these really unique, specific programs to meet the needs of a diverse student body. And so students who are neurotypical, but also perhaps atypical, and offering these programs. However, when there's an expectation that all of the same 
rules and regulations apply to these students, and sometimes maybe the students don't quite get it right, we see there's a deterioration of the idea of support and inclusion. It, it becomes more a situation in which there's this overarching idea of, well, we have the rule, you didn't follow the rule, thus you need to be disciplined. And, and we just find that to be at odds with the idea of inclusion. Do you have a specific example in mind of, of how that plays out, especially in the post-secondary or, or college world? Every day we get called <laughs> where that situation plays out. So whether it's a student who is on the autism spectrum and masturbates in the dorm room, not understanding that privacy is important, that it might offend a roommate. Whether it's oh, a situation, okay. I'm just <laughs> uh, too much. Just I know, no. I'm just going to put a pin in that because I'm pretty sure that's not an uncommon thing in a college dorm room. You know what I mean? Agree, right? But most students who are not on the autism spectrum would understand that if they're going to masturbate, their roommate shouldn't be in the room. <laughs> right. Okay. Right. Right. So we have we've dealt with sex issues. We've also dealt with issues where students struggle with just navigating living with a roommate and the tensions that arise and might not be able to stay in control and might decompensate and what that looks like. I represented a young woman, and when she was upset, she went into a closet in a hallway of an academic building and had a full-blown meltdown. And instead of trying to de-escalate the situation, Campus police were called, and that made it worse. So understanding that when you accept a student with disability, you have to understand what comes with that disability and how do you address the hiccups, whether it's a sexual issue, such as masturbating in a dorm room, which is an uncomfortable thing to talk about, right? We don't like talking about masturbation, and I've said it the word four times, <laughs> or, or, when things go wrong and a student might not be able to neurologically stay together, how are we going to de-escalate tension? I would say another area of that type of case that we deal with regularly, as Susan mentioned, we do a lot of work on behalf of students on the autism spectrum. And in the Title IX world, we regularly see cases involving allegations of stalking. And really at the heart of those cases, more often than not, is a student who liked someone, maybe had a crush on someone, was interested in dating, and, and maybe didn't quite know how to go about doing it. Or perhaps the student who was on the receiving end of the attention, the attention wasn't quite clear as to his or her interests or desires. And we often come across this idea of, oh, I don't want to be mean. I want to just let them down softly. And so, oh, I'm busy. I'm tied up. I can't make it. Versus just saying, no, I don't want to go on a date with you. And for students on the spectrum who are exploring their sexuality and want to have independence and dating, it's challenging. Hmm. So what's the the remedy for this? I mean, you are fighting for your clients, it's, but it sounds like we need to be doing something to prepare these post-secondary institutions to, if they're accepting people with disabilities like autism, you know, or or whatever, that they need to be prepared to have them in their class and to support them. Yes. Let's look at discipline in the public school setting until 18 or for some students until their 22nd birthday. 
Should a disciplinary situation arise, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act requires educational institutions to conduct a manifestation determination. What does that mean? Is the behavior a manifestation of the disability? And if so, what can we do to remedy the manifestation? Do we do a functional behavior analysis? Do we create a behavioral intervention plan? Well, if you think about it, Tim, nothing magically changes once you go from high school to college. The same disability exists. So I would advocate for a manifestation analysis to continue. I think that that is something where parents and educators, there's room for improvement in terms of everyone working collaboratively so that there is an understanding that not if, but rather when certain behaviors occur, how do we respond to the behaviors in a meaningful, restorative, or educational way, as opposed to just a punitive response? You did something bad, thus you need to be punished. And I want to add to it, it's not always true that a disciplinary situation is going to arise. Maybe it's a social need. Maybe it's that student with a disability who's feeling very lonely and can't connect with other peers. How can educational institutions make sure that those students feel socially supported? Do they have like-minded groups of students that they can talk about the issues that they face? Look, regular students can access fraternities and sororities and athletic teams, and there's a wide range of social opportunities. Those opportunities need to be made available for students with disabilities. Are you aware of an institution that does this well? That's a good question. And and you can tell that Susan and I are both pausing to think and reflect. I myself have trouble identifying one institution as a whole that always gets it right. Because I do believe that generally the schools want to get it right and try to get it right. But, you know, as as life happens and situations unfold, it's hard to get it right all the time. I just want to say, too, to be fair to those educational institutions out there, we only see the cases that come to us when things go wrong. We see the worst. We see the worst. So to be fair. That's actually an excellent point. And, you know, more balanced in our thoughts. We don't get, nobody calls a lawyer and says, things are going great. We only get the calls when things break down. So we're not the best people to ask that question mm-hmm. because they wouldn't land to us. That's but true. I think your yeah. question is a, is a good one, Tim. And what we tell parents who are, you know, helping plan for the future for their child, whether it's college or something else, ask questions, you know, really push about programs and opportunities that the institution offers to different bodies of students. And then also press about, well, gee, this is all, this sounds like, you know, roses and sunshine, but when things go wrong, do you have a particular dean of students, for example, or contact person in a supportive services office who might be an intermediary to help triage the situation, whatever it might be? Have you run across any situations with institutions who have like a inclusive post-secondary program. So for instance, I'm in the state of Georgia and the University of Georgia in Athens has something called Destination Dogs, which is a program where they accept students with intellectual disabilities or other developmental disabilities. So they have not, they have not accepted a student into their, I guess, I, I don't know what the best word is, general or mainstream program. It's still 
included on campus. Some students audit classes. They're a part of the campus life. Do you have any experience working with clients that have been in those kinds of programs, you know, in your, in your field? I'm not sure what, I'm not sure what it's like in Ohio, but. We do, actually. Okay. We did work with a student with a, an intellectual disability, and she was accepted into a program at a nearby university, which was specifically set up to teach basic learning skills, how to live more independently. And it's, an excellent program and does a really nice job. Of course, we got the hiccup that mm-hmm. we were able to navigate successfully for that client. But we see more and more students finding those programs as the need in our country has developed. Even in the proposed new regulations for Title IX, the Biden administration is really sensitive to the issue of how do the Title IX regulations how are they going to apply to students with disabilities? And I think there's more thought about the intersection between higher education and students with disabilities. But I want to point out, you know, we're talking about a really large umbrella. So there are those programs with severe intellectual disabilities, but then we have students out there who are in the regular education setting, possibly high, high on the autism spectrum, and they're our best and our brightest students. Mm-hmm. They just have more social needs, but they don't have intellectual needs. In fact, they're outpacing other students in the intellectual realm or academically. So you really, we have to be careful how we categorize different disabilities. Is it just a student in a, a wheelchair where a good, you know, a, the compliance with that portion of the ADA that requires elevators and ramps? Is it a student with ADHD? who needs extended time. So I have a hard time having one conversation because I think that almost every educational secondary school would say that they accept students with disabilities. The question is, what are the disabilities and what are the needs? I would add that perhaps for your listeners who maybe aren't familiar with student misconduct proceedings and and what those look like and how they play out in real time, at the heart of, particularly in college, student misconduct proceedings, is the idea that the student advocates for him or herself. And so what does that mean for students with communication challenges in particular? Really hard for them to stand up and speak and advocate for themselves and, and plead their case, so to speak, the way lawyers do. Because even with accommodations afforded to the students in these proceedings, most schools generally require the student to speak for him or herself. And so you can imagine how incredibly difficult that would be for someone, regardless of the circumstances, who's already nervous, maybe embarrassed about something, never been in trouble before. So it's a completely new situation. And there's a, a lot that goes into these proceedings. And if you add into that, a student not having you know, the ability to to communicate perhaps the way Susan and I would, it, it's difficult. Mm-hmm. I agree, mm-hmm. Christina. That was really nicely put. Very thoughtful. Very. I love how supportive of you are. You, you are. <laughs> Each other. It's great. They, we try we to be. Try. <laughs> we try. We have a tough job, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, right. Uh, I'm just thinking of where we want to go from here. Oh, I had a, I did have a question about where 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 to go? It was about it was about what oh the like an MDR 
situation. Are are you aware of any are you aware of any organizations whether you know it's legal advocacy or educational advocacy that are pushing for reforms in post-secondary institutions to change how colleges and institutions are supporting students with disabilities? I am not. So I would give a shout out to those organizations if they are involved and they're listening to this podcast and they want to reach out to Christina and I and get some input. We'd love to participate in that. But no, I don't know of that. But that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I I will say just, you know, anecdotally, Pim, in a couple of years back when there was a a public notice and comment period for what we now know as the 2020 Title IX regulations, Susan and I actually went to D.C. to speak to the Department of Education to address the issue of the need for disability accommodations for students in Title IX proceedings. So to get more formalistic about it, the intersection between Title IX regulations and the ADA, because that was a really, um, we felt, significant issue that wasn't totally addressed and thought through by the drafters. And so it, it's an issue that's on people's radar and and Department of Education is improving, but we certainly always want to try to be vocal for the rights and interests of those students. Okay, thanks. Yeah, just I was just curious about that. And then this is not this is not on my list of questions, but why is why is this work important to you? You're clearly both Christina and Susan, you're both clearly passionate about this. Spe- you know, specifically standing up for the rights of your clients. Um so why what what is your why with all of this? I would say that in in all the various facets of our careers, because Susan and I came to this work from from different backgrounds, but we've always been the voice for, I guess, the underdog, so to speak. And so in any setting, and I think that speaking for myself, after I became a mother and had my own children and just became more aware of these issues and the impact on their lives, it just really hit home for how important it is to always be mindful of these really special students who have unique needs and circumstances and that, that those students are, are always, you know, part of the conversation. For me, working with students and especially those students with disabilities, this has been a 30-year passion of mine. Early on in my career, I worked for a small firm that actually represented school boards, and I practiced in the area, you know, from the school perspective. And then later I became a hearing officer actually making decisions when there were challenges. So I was the neutral hearing Mm. officer in those matters. And then when I returned to more private practice after my kids were a bit older, I decided I wanted to go from school side from into independent to student side. But I have always had my hand in this very issue. I've my entire career has been based on this topic because it is compelling to me. I am a mother first. And I would say that looking at my career, I was comfortable saying that I was a mom first when women were trying very hard to say, I can tough it out and deny their motherhood. I am a lawyer and I can compete with men. And early on, I remember saying after I had my first child, you know what? This career has to fit within my role as mom. And I don't care what anybody else thinks. 
this is my primary job is to raise these kids. I work to support my family and I want my work to have meaning. And that has been my call to action. That's what gets me up in the morning is not only working with my children, but I tell my clients, whether they're disabled or typical students in a disability, I will treat you no differently and take care of you no differently than if you were my own child. Now, that's got its pros and cons because I'm a pretty tough mom. So <laughs> watch out. But I am a mama bear at heart. Thank you for sharing that. Um, um, what about for families who are concerned about this transition You know, from high school? The families have an IEP. There are some legal safeguards as they move into whether they're accepted into a traditional educational institution or an inclusive post-secondary program. You know, what are some what are some things for families to think about? Are there any legal safeguards for them as they are looking to this transition? That's a great question, Tim. And I guess I'm I'm gonna have to go dark. I'm gonna have to go negative here. I really encourage parents with rising freshman college to have conversations about the criminal justice system. So once you're 18, you are an adult and police and prosecutors are not as sympathetic to various disability issues as educators and administrators in high school and and who may have come into contact with students when they were juveniles. And so it's important that Parents have these real world conversations with their children so that if, God forbid, the, I'll say child, even though it's someone over the age of 18, comes into a situation that just doesn't quite go as expected, and God forbid there's police involvement, the student knows how to behave, what to do, what not to do. I'm going to be a little more practical here. Most parents and students with disabilities understand that if they want accommodations, which is afforded to them under both the Americans with Disabilities Act and the Rehabilitation Act under Section 504, that you can get accommodations by registering with a school's Office of Disabilities. And each school calls their Office of Disabilities something different. Office of Disabilities, DEI, inclusivity, whatever the label is. What I would say is to get more specific, to take the IEP to the office and say, can you look at this IEP or this 504 plan? Can something like this be actually implemented for my student or for myself, whoever is going to the program? And don't be afraid to share the relevant documents. Don't be embarrassed. We see that a lot where students in college want to feel independent. Like I can do it. I'm going to prove myself. And there's some, I don't know if it's shame or embarrassment, but the student doesn't want to come forward and say, okay, here's my IEP. These are the challenges I face in life. And so it's really important. It's valuable advice that Susan's giving. I mean, look, I want to talk about something that just came in the door. We have a student with disabilities in a primary school setting, and the student is constantly moving his leg up and down in his desk. And then the movement bumps into the other student and another student is screaming, I feel harassed, I feel uncomfortable. And it's causing a massive legal issue. Now, for the student with ADD, moving a leg and shaking and fidgeting is quite normal. In fact, we know that many disabilities come with fidgeting. Students on the spectrum fidget. Students with ADHD fidget. Students with anxiety 
also can fidget. Fidgeting, and I would also say typical students fidget, Mm -hmm. right? Absolutely. Fidgeting is a common behavior, but fidgeting can be really annoying to other students and interfere with other students' disability or rights, sorry. So get specific. Does that mean if a student is going to be sitting in a classroom, should that student maybe sit separate and apart from other students? How can we work through that that specific behavior? That's just a very concrete, real-world example. Know what you need and advocate it, but do it before your student gets there. Hmm. Yeah. I I know that especially in in K-12, some families create a a document that's not that's a separate from the IEP like a get to know you kind of document and we'll give that to teachers in advance of the school year so if they're moving if they're a rising fourth grader they give this document or sometimes it's even a powerpoint where it introduces the child it introduces their strengths what you know what their triggers are, you know, just so that the educator understands, oh, this person is coming to me. This is how I can create a more inclusive classroom for that student. So I think that that would, that seems like that would alleviate some of those issues. I wonder if there's something like that as we think about transition age students, something that they can give like a cheat sheet, you know, Along with the IEP, because a lot of times you, you get an IEP and it's like, it's, it reads like a legal document. It is a legal yeah, document. It, it doesn't <laughs> read like one. It actually <laughs> is a binding document that the school is obligated to deliver on. And if they don't deliver on, there are legal repercussions. But I think you're touching on a really important point, Tim. And at the heart of what, you know, what I'm hearing, but at the heart of what you're saying is this idea of having open communication with educators and decision makers about whatever the student's circumstances are. Oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes when all of the information is on the table with the people who need to know, right? Because not everyone needs to know. Students absolutely are entitled to have some privacy and indeed federal law recognizes that. But, you know, again, having dialogue and some transparency among the, the stakeholders and can help sometimes alleviate these, these issues that bring people to Susan and me, that bring people to our doorstep. I agree. And I like your suggestion, Tim, and I think it's worth a shot. Thanks. Um, <laughs> are there any specific examples of clients that you could share about that I guess are wins? You know, and, and we haven't necessarily been talking about inclusion per se, you know, so it could be a win for inclusion. It could not be a win. I, that. I didn't want to, you know, paint us into a corner with just inclusion. So let me ask that question again. So are there any specific examples of clients that you've worked with that that are wins for the client? Well, we see wins all the time. Mm -hmm. I think that's what keeps us motivated. Absolutely. Do we get it 100% of the time? No. And any lawyer who says they win every time is lying. (laughs) We really do have seen some great results, whether it's keeping a student in school when they're at risk of suspension, achieving a better IEP or a better placement. We're very fortunate that we have seen a lot of success. Or even neurodiverse college students who are, you know, in a challenging situation, enabling that student to remain in on-campus housing, living in a dorm, 
because, I mean, oftentimes, isn't that what we think of as sort of the, the ultimate college experience living in a dorm? And so helping to keep students from various backgrounds in dorms, we've, we've had many cases that wrestle with the housing piece because it's a big part of the college experience. I miss living in a dorm. I'd like someone to cook <laughs> my meals for me. And what do you think? And be with a bunch of friends around me, clean all the common spaces. I know. I know. <laughs> Maybe that's why we're in this job to reminisce back to our college days. <laughs> well, so before I ask you about your podcast, is there anything else that you wanted to talk about or feel like we missed in this conversation? I, I think you've touched on all the important I agree. points. We're really um, appreciate your insight. Yeah, it's a nice conversation. Okay, good, good. All right, so Su- Susan and Christina, you have a podcast called Real Talk with Susan and Christina. Great title. Real Talk. <laughs> Well, you know, kind of like what we're having right now, right? Right. Real talk. talk. <laughs> I'm putting you on the spot, but are there any particular episodes that come to mind that go, oh, that was a really good conversation so that you can tell our listeners about the podcast, about Real Talk? Sure. And and yeah, for, for your listeners out there, check us out. We're on all the streaming platforms, Real Talk with Susan and Christina. That was um, a nice plug. Why, thank you. <laughs> There's a couple episodes that I think come to mind as being really important or or powerful episodes. We hear often, we had a mother on who spoke about her son's experience going through the criminal justice system and what the experience was for her child, herself, and her family. And just hearing about their family's journey through civil and criminal legal proceedings that we're regularly told. That was one of our best. Our listeners really enjoyed that episode um, just because it's a perspective that you very rarely hear. I liked a lot. We spoke to Dr. Mark McConville on failure to launch. That was a good one. Too. That was really good talking about those students who just can't quite move into what I would like to call as adulting. You know, the kid in the parents' basement can't quite leave the nest. Yeah. So we talked about that, but. We try to stay on top of current issues. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, there are some parenting issues that never change. Positive discipline, how to discipline kids. That's important for all parents, and that's never going to change. Recently, with the Supreme Court decision, Dobbs, dealing with abortion, uh, we had a wonderful guest on who we had a nice conversation about the considerations for families as they're preparing for college and, you know, the issues that students should plan for based on, you know, their sexual experiences and, and where they're at on the issue of abortion. And so that was a really nice discussion as well. We've also talked about fentanyl. Mm-hmm. We try to tackle the difficult issues in a non-judgmental, objective way. And that is really hard because, of course, we're human beings. We have opinions. We did one with two high school kids on cancel culture. And I still look back. That was one of our earlier podcasts. And I still think that was an important discussion as we see cancel culture play out every day. I will say, I think we're getting to be better at podcasting. It's definitely a different skill than being a lawyer. Absolutely. And it's hard to, one of our goals that Susan and I always talk about is what do we want to do? We want to give accurate information to parents, arm parents with information so that 
families can make their own decisions based on their experiences and value systems and, and all of that. So we're not trying to be didactic, but we want to provide information and, and you know, on, on topics that are difficult to talk about. And at times, sometimes we're better than others at, at yeah. not, you know, letting our bias take over. But but we're human. We're human. That's right. And our goal is to just give information for parents on tough issues and maybe issues that that aren't on parents' radar. Fantastic. So if you're listening, well, I hope you're listening. You should be listening if you're hearing our voices. <laughs> maybe they're driving, Tim. Yeah. <laughs> for those in the car, that's when I listen to my podcast. For those taking a walk. Or doing the dishes. Doing the dishes. Yeah, I do. Yeah. Well, I listen to podcasts all the time, but Mm -hmm. mostly it's walking, dishes, laundry. That explains why I'm a bad driver. Oh, no. I think there's other reasons. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Driving, running. So I'm a runner. So I I run with podcasts. Yeah. I do like, I I mostly listen to music because I think that's what you know, keeps me going, but sure. sometimes a really good podcast will keep me going as well. I agree. Yeah. So please check out Real Talk with Susan and Christina in your favorite podcast app. All right. How can families get a hold of you if they are interested in what you do? Our website is studentdefense.kjk.com. We're also on Instagram at Stone Supler. And then, of course, the podcast. You can find us everywhere. We're here if you need if you need us, okay? But hopefully, you won't need us. But if you do, you can find us. Susan Stone and Christina Supler, thank you so much for being on the Think Inclusive podcast. Our pleasure. Thank you for having us. It's actually nice to be a guest. As podcast hosts, we love having guests, but it's kind of like having someone over to your house for dinner as much as I love to entertain. I like being a guest, too. Nice to show up for a meal. It is. Think Inclusive is written, edited, and sound designed by Tim Villegas and is a production of MCIE. Original music by Miles Kredich. Attention school leaders, did you know that you can team up with the Maryland Coalition for Inclusive Education to promote inclusive practices in your school or district, regardless of your location? MCIE has partners in Maryland, Illinois, Virginia, Arkansas, Oklahoma, and more joining us in this work. Our goal is to expand partnerships in every state in the U.S. and beyond. The first step is to start a conversation with us. Visit our contact page at mcie.org contact and let us know that you want to transform your educational services to be inclusive of all learners. Also, please mention Think Inclusive in your message to let us know how you found out about MCIE. We can't wait to hear from you. A special thanks to our patrons, Melissa H., Joyner E., Pamela P., Mark C., Kathy B., Kathleen T., Jarrett T., Gabby M., Aaron P., Paula W., and Carol Q. for their support of Think Inclusive. Thanks for your time and attention. And remember, inclusion always works. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. 
That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.